On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers beyond academia. Each episode, we'll interview a person who's put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities scholars to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Winters, and today we are once again in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media to speak with Taylor Politis, a writer, researcher, and educator in Providence, Rhode Island. He earned a BA in History and French from Washington University in St. Louis and an MFA in Creative Writing from Wilkes University. Thank you for speaking with us today, Taylor. Thank you, Catherine. You did not begin your career by working in the humanities. In fact, you worked in finance for over 10 years. First, why did you initially enter finance, and then why did you decide to take the risk to become a professional writer? I graduated, as you noted, from Washington University with a degree in history and French, and I found in college, actually, when I entered college, I entered in the School of Architecture, and it took me one semester to realize (laughs) that architecture was not what I was interested in. I spent a lot of time as a young person drawing houses. And it was actually the people in the houses who I found most compelling. So I had always had this urge to write stories and to to write fiction. And I think that the ability to articulate that or see that as a real viable career option, it just didn't seem realistic. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, a history degree, I'm really passionate about history. And so I... My plan was to pursue a Ph.D. degree in history. I took a year off from college and was going to apply. And a friend who I had met uh, in a year abroad program in France uh, lived in the New York City area and urged me to come up and sort of do a year abroad in New York City. Um, And so I kind of randomly got this job, an administrative job, at a a big financial services firm in New York City and never applied to grad school. Uh, I ended up working there and loving New York and sort of this moving from from the Deep South to New York City uh, was a huge change and uh, formative life experience. And I got caught up in in that world and embraced that world. And I began to build a career in finance. And yet that uh, passion for telling stories and that interest in history remained a sort of a, a, a need and a, a desire that I felt um, all the while. And so I came to a point in my working career, I ended up working uh, at Goldman Sachs for 13 years. And during that time, I continued to write and continued to do research. I even did some graduate work at the um, the graduate school, the um, City University of New mm-hmm. York Graduate School. And I, I came to a sort of a, an opportunity point where I said, you know, I have I have a great career and I'm I'm making really good money and I can stay here and do this this financial thing that I don't love doing, but I can do it and I can do it well. Mm-hmm. Or I can and I like that you use the word risk, uh, I can take a, a a chance and leave this work and 
see if I can redirect my life in this direction that my passions are telling me to go. And so when I thought about it as a risk, I also thought, what is the real risk here? I think I am a smart person who can do all kinds of work. And if I'm unhappy in this job uh, that I'm doing well at, surely I can be unhappy in any job and (laughs) do somewhat well at, at it versus taking the risk of doing something that I really love and makes me happy and seeing if I can make that work. So I, I, made this plan where I would leave my job and focus on writing. And if it didn't work out, I would just get a new job. And and that that was a real, I think there were all sorts of things that went into that decision, but that decision to do that was a real realization, an epiphany for me in terms of how I can make choices in my life and choose the things that I love and that inspire me and that that, that does work out and that you should follow that kind of inspiration or passion. So so you mentioned uh, moving from the Deep South to New York City, and you grew up in Alabama. Yes. And you developed a passion for history partly there. Yes. Um, but can you describe how you came to be involved in the public humanities? How did you move from someone writing and researching to creating projects such as the West Side Walking Tour, the Cathedral Square of Yesteryear, and the Pond Street Project? Right. And I think the that as I talked about sort of my past and, and sort of finding the things that interested me, history has always been something that I'm passionate about that is uh, a, a space that I am naturally drawn into and I, I can lose myself in. And that interest grew with me in Alabama. So Alabama, and I grew up in Huntsville, and my uh, father worked with NASA there, which is why I was born there. That's my origin story, growing up in Alabama, you know? Um, and, and I think the Deep South, obviously, and we're, we're still grappling with this legacy of slavery and history and what it all means and how it continues to impact our lives. And certainly that sort of, you know, growing up in Alabama is like the ground zero of this, this story. And in Alabama, there are all sorts of stories being told about that experience. And I really absorbed those stories. I was fascinated by them and I sought them out. Um, And so then going to college and continuing to study history, but in a more kind of rigorous academic way and a way that emphasizes all these different viewpoints um, in Alabama, the white dominant majority viewpoint is the story that you hear. And that story tends to be um, sentimental and Mm -hmm. apologetic and um, and de-emphasizing what the impacts and the injustices and, and horrors of a system in which human beings own other human beings, what that system really is. Uh, and so going to college and reading history from all these different viewpoints really challenged my assumptions. Because at a certain point, you hear stories and you digest them. They, you internalize them in a way where you don't even um, realize that there are questions to be asked. And that was a really transformative experience for me around what history is, what history telling can do. Um, And so that every place that I've moved, I have, I lived in New York City, I lived in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and now I live in Providence, Rhode Island. Everywhere I go, I am interested in understanding the story of the place. What is its past about? And when I moved to Providence, I had graduated from the 
MFA program, and I had sold my novel, my first novel, to Simon & Schuster. And so these were dream come true experiences, like really extraordinary, again, to sort of take that risk and say, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to see what happens. And to have that uh, dream come true experience was a, a validation of this this you know idea of pursuing your interest but i also knew that i would need to to still work writers don't make any money so i would still need to work and so i was looking for a place to to move where there would be teaching opportunities hmm. and uh and that also was a place that i wanted to be in and i had really grown to love new england and to kind of uh naturalize in a New England sensibility, maybe. Uh, And so I wanted to stay in the Northeast, and Providence just sort of kept cropping up as a a good choice, a place with um, a reasonable cost of living. This is almost 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) What was a reasonable cost of living? Um, And a real density of culture and an appreciation of culture and discovery and experimentation and uh, a a beautiful city with a historic, a legacy of historic architecture that tells a lot of the story of the city. Um, And so all these things were really attractive to me. And, but I didn't know anybody in Providence. I just moved here. I really leapt kind of into it blindly. Um, And so what another sort of amazing to me sort of extraordinary turn of events is to have moved to Providence and to feel connected right away. You know, within a few months, I knew my neighbors in the neighborhood in the West, uh, uh, in the West End that I lived in. Uh, I was connected to institutions like the Athenaeum Mm -hmm. and the Providence Public Library and the incredible people who work there. I felt really acknowledged and embraced in that way. And all of that led to other uh, interactions with people, for instance, at the Council for the Humanities, mm. uh, the West Broadway Neighborhood Association, working on preservation and history telling projects with them around the Cranston Street Armory to advocate for the preservation and importance of this building and, and to find a way to tell its story to people that makes them think about it differently. And and I don't know if I if I had moved anywhere else, if I would have come into those relationships and opportunities to work and play in history. Uh, Providence is a just an extraordinary city in terms of its culture and the things that people are doing there and the enthusiasm and support for people making things. So I feel like that transition from, you know, a, a, a kid who loves history to uh, an adult who is trying to build a professional literary-ish career to someone who becomes you know, what we would call a public humanist, mm. someone who is engaging in the community in activities that encourage people to play and create and to discover stories and to look for the ways that those stories change the way we see and understand things. Uh, that, I think, is is Providence. I, I, I blame Providence for all of that. <laughs> I also like that you said work and play in history. There, there's fun in it. There's, yes. there's something just enjoyable it about a lot be. of these projects that you're doing. It must be fun. It must be fun. Don't do it if it's not fun. <laughs> I feel like 100% the play to me, I look back to my childhood and all those houses that I used to draw and the towns I would create and the people in the houses and the maps. That was a world that I got lost in not because I thought I was doing something that was good for me, but I hated doing, but because I loved it. Mm-hmm. it. There was something about it that drew me in. And and that is that has become a 
a sort of a guidepost for me in both how I sort of check into myself and say, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? But also in the way I encourage students in my teaching to make it fun. Where is the fun in it? Why are we, why de-emphasize play? Play is a fundamental of culture and the creation of culture. All of the institutions and organizations and relationships are born out of play. There are cultural anthropologists who write books about uh, play as in, uh, you know, the, the, the basis of, of society. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really is truthful and meaningful and is something that is not purely an academic subject, but something that we can all implement in the way we approach our lives and that that enriches our lives. Yeah. I was thinking about um, a lot recently, a number of people have been talking about scientists and when scientists are given the freedom to not answer a very specific question, but kind of just play with things and how that has led to so many of our, like the discoveries that we acknowledge as extremely significant today. Right, right. Um, But at the same time that that gets closed down because of funding. Right. (laughs) So even though you've lived in the Northeast and New England for, I said several years, but Really, a twenty. Few decades p- the now? majority of my life, I think that I moved to New York City when I was twenty-three, and so that I keep saying I keep moving further and further north. So maybe it's Canada next. I don't know. Well, I feel like Providence is Maine it. First. I, probably, I know. I could do Maine. I could totally do Maine. <laughs> so even though you've lived in the Northeast and New England for most of your life, your work still demonstrates a deep connection to the South in general and Alabama in particular. Is there something about careers in the humanities that allows someone's personal experiences to have relevancy that they do not have in other careers, such as a career in finance? Uh, and how do these experiences translate into public humanities work? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Alabama, and, and we're human animals, and we understand the world through five senses, Every, all the information we get comes through our five senses. So these are the filters for our experience, how we understand and integrate ourselves into the world. But the five senses, and I think that from a sort of maybe a scientific, uh, technical, mechanical standpoint, those senses are, are observed as measurement, systems of measure, and that there are ways to measure this objectively, all these things, the world around us in this objective, dispassionate way. And yet uh, we also are emotional, reactive um, animals who have internal filters that are the things that come through our senses are processed through. And so growing up in Alabama, a white man, a white person growing up in Alabama, absorbing stories and narrative, both explicit and implicit, creates filters, mental filters of understanding that we we can see sometimes and that in many cases we don't see. And so I think that that for me, again, going to college, the examination of history, the engagement in uh, a, a sort of an academic historical process where where you are evaluating experiences in a variety of viewpoints begins to inevitably forces you to examine your own viewpoints and your own assumptions, your own understandings. It kind of cracks them open one by one and that that is a lifelong process and that 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 
idea of not just our physical senses, but our internal emotional filters. The examination of our internal emotional filters is what the humanities Hmm. is about. And so to grow up in Alabama, that experience and the filters both that I see and I, I don't see are things that I bring to everything that I do and understand and the actions that I take. So I think that there is, if you are engaging in these humanities-related disciplines in an academic way or just in your life, in that play life that we have to cultivate for ourselves, that those filters of experience are fundamental to both how we approach all of our work and I think again scientific or mechanical or these technical disciplines appear to be disconnected from that but but they aren't but they appear to be and we talk about them as if they're disconnected from that whereas engaging in humanities work is acknowledging all of that and and using that also as a way to examine ourselves and and the world we live in it is and that's a good way to put it um i mean i personally rail a little bit against the whole idea of objectivity right um, how is that even possible right yeah and i'd like to make all of my students very upset by really questioning their their sense of objectivity and right some of them get right. more upset than others but. which is always interesting and again i feel like the emotional response the higher gauged the emotional response is the more maybe the sensor should be like the s E-N-S-O-R <laughs> should tell us to pause and what am I reacting to? Yeah. Why am I, why is my emotional reaction to this so high? How is this a truth or how is this a piece of information that is challenging what I perceive to be the truth? And, um, and again, that's what I think across the board, the humanity is sort of writ large. That's what they do. Although the angriest I've ever made my students was the time I told them that once upon a time zero did not exist as a concept. That just drove them. How is that even possible? Exactly. <laughs> they they did not understand. They were the void the no. most upset with me. They were like, How did they not understand this? And I, I was it. like, I can't tell you that. I just know they didn't. That's right. So your graduate degrees were focused on creative writing. Uh, you did get an MA in addition to the MFA yes. from Wilkes University. And obviously, your creative work is a big part of your engagement with the public. Aside from the production and publishing of your own creative work, how does your education in creative writing inform the other kinds of public humanities work you do? So creative writing is storytelling, but history is storytelling. And so it's it. So look, understanding, finally sort of seeing, oh, that these two things are the same was, again, a real sort of epiphany to me. And I think it was really valuable for me to engage in this academic historical study to understand, uh, you know, sort of the the historical method and its discipline and its rigor and its approach to to pursuing, while perhaps not achieving, objectivity. (laughs) Uh, And then to go into a place where writing fiction, you know, in fiction writing, we talk about... um, truth, truth and fiction. You're making up a story, but what is the truth underlying that story? And is there an emotional truth or a truth about human experience that is being unwrapped through the imagined experience of the story? And so that that pursuit of objectivity and truth is is aligned. You know, we're trying to um, 
provide an experience and an understanding to our readers about a person or an event, real or imagined. And so when I actually began teaching at the Rhode Island School of Design, which is a wonderful place to teach, a visual arts college, uh, and I teach creative writing, fiction writing, and other sort of humanities-related courses. So to go into a space where the students are focused on a visual practice, but they come into my workshops looking to create a writing practice and to to both learn and then try to engage the students in understanding that creative writing is a visual practice mm-hmm. as well, that when we tell stories, we use pictures to make the reader see an experience and to feel the emotion that we're trying to, to cultivate in a reader. So that that visual practice and a writing practice are aligned, that it is all storytelling and that the understanding of the mechanics and the purposes and the um, the tools available to create a story that becomes imagined, visually imagined by a reader are the same tools and methods that can be implemented in their visual practice to achieve hmm. these emotional effects we want to achieve. And that when you sort of pull the focus back and examine the world we live in, everything is telling a story, whether I'm sitting here with you talking, trying to sort of <laughs> translate moments in my life into a coherent narrative, or whether I'm watching an ad, you know, assaulted by ads on YouTube, they are telling me a story and trying to provoke an emotion that makes me take action mm-hmm. of some kind. And so that, I think, is a an incredibly valuable skill for a person to develop, particularly and ever more importantly in the world we live in today where the technology has enabled us to immerse ourselves in an incessant media barrage that is composed of stories. Mm-hmm. And all of those stories are are geared toward provoking an emotion that leads to an action. And if we are able to fine-tune our filters to understand why the emotion I'm feeling from this story is the emotion I'm feeling and what the goal, the sort of machine behind the story, what action that machine is kind of trying to make me take, the better prepared we are to navigate this world of misinformation that we're also swimming in. Uh, And so I think that that idea, everything is storytelling. Everything we do is storytelling and understanding the components and the, the, the power of storytelling enables us to navigate our world and understand ourselves better in that. Yeah. So a lot of it is to take from what you're saying, going and getting the advanced degree in creative writing really helped you to see how so much of the world revolves around storytelling. You you already kind of knew that when you were just developing the passion for history and then studying history. But then to really have this, you were able to see it so much more widely. Yes, in a, a fully realized way. And I think that's right. I think that we innately understand the power of stories and we want to tell stories as, again, human animals. We are storytellers to each other. And so we are constantly, even in an anecdotal, you wouldn't believe what happened to me yesterday, um, we're constantly telling stories. And so this is a natural impulse that we have. Uh, so to to then exactly engage in sort of an academic study of what storytelling is and how it works opens up this understanding of of everything that we're doing, you know, of everything that we're engaging in. So in thinking about your work in the public humanities outside of academia, 
it seems that many of the projects you're involved in are still educationally based projects. Uh, some of them are really explicit, but in particular, I'm thinking about the workshops you organize, yeah. like the Providence Wallpaper event, mm -hmm. uh, and similar activities where the public engages with the humanities not as something they just experience, but as something they can do themselves. Why do you think this type of humanities engagement that allows the public to do these things themselves is important? And I think this connects directly back to what we talked about earlier about play, mm -hmm. and that through play, and so to talk about these um, great students at RISD that I work with, they have a visual practice that is super high stress. This is their oh. life and career that they're focusing on, and so it's so important that they achieve. They come into a writing workshop where there's not even a degree in creative writing offered at RISD. So, there's, so the stakes are much lower, and I encourage them to play. And through that practice of play, through the action, not addressing output, not saying your ultimate finished product is, you know, high quality or is effective, but through the the experimentation and play, the risk taking, the um, opportunities for f for what I'll put in quotes failure, um, through that, l trying to minimize the stress of and fear of fail quote failure uh, in the play of writing stories affords a person an opportunity to discover and to create mm -hmm. and to understand themselves better. And, and, and that is in a creative writing workshop in a classroom at a university. Um, and the parallel between that and, for instance, the wallpaper show is, is, is clear to me, the, the sort of the analog of, of play and creative writing and what it, the opportunity affords a person to feel purposeful and to feel creative and to discover things about themselves applies to all the actions. So, you know, I wanted to make wallpaper for my dining room. I had gotten involved. <laughs> <laughs> I had gotten involved at the, uh, the print shop at AS220, which is this wonderful, welcoming, creative space. And again, this is Provi it's Providence's fault. Um, the people there were amazing. There were other people in the community I knew who uh, were excited about the idea of making wallpaper. And through these connections and circumstances, I was able to organize in collaboration with AS220 and the Athenaeum and the Providence Public Library and Jory Ketton and her gallery at, that was at 186 Carpenter Street, a community, an inv open invitation to anyone in the community who wanted to give it a try. A, a suite of classes that would give them the skills to be able to do it. I provided them with the blank wallpaper, and then they um, played. They just created something. And guaranteed, if you made something and you gave me 10 or 12 feet of it, it would be in this gallery show. And so talks, all sorts of things were organized around that. And that was, again, totally Providence's fault. <laughs> and that this this city provides a space for even me to kind of organize as an act of play this event and experimentation in um, in this weird space of wallpaper making, like whatever, uh, I think reflects the richness and the, um, the appreciation for play and creation that this city has. And so, so I feel, again, super fortunate to be in Providence, but that sense of play is also what I am trying to cultivate in uh, Wright, Rhode Island, W-R-I-T-E, um, a uh, 
short fiction competition for 7th through 12th graders through uh, a group I belong to, Goat Hill, which is, offers writers workshops in partnership with School One, a private arts high school on the east side, which is a wonderful place, again, for play and creation. And so between us, we are, will be entering our fourth year of offering workshops in libraries and schools across the state, um, like managing this uh, uh, competition for the 7th through 12th graders to create a story, submit it, um, working with uh, over 50 volunteers in the judging and evaluation process and organizing readings and events and award ceremonies, ultimately leading to publication in a small sort of short fiction anthology. So, so cultivating that sense of play in creative writing that I think is so important and creating all sorts of outputs that support and embrace and honor what that work is. And that sort of models for me this idea of of playing, getting in the game and having fun and and not worrying about the results of the play, but knowing that the experience itself can be transformative for a person. And so I think, again, that um, that idea of play that we bring to all the work we do is... Um, is what, what enriches us, what opens us up to discovery and to transformation. It's interesting because with the emphasis on play, it becomes so much more clear why people need to engage with it in a really hands-on way as opposed to just receiving it right. um, or listening to it or reading it because, right. you know, obviously I'm not going to say that books or documentaries or any of those things aren't good or useful, but if if the focus is on play and how play can teach you about yourself, then obviously you have to do it. You can't just hear about someone doing it. Right. Doing it is the, the key. Yeah, I agree. And that, I think, too, is this idea of the humanities and what are the humanities. And, and when we talk about the humanities, we often are thinking in an academic setting and a, a sense of study or analysis of things, mm-hmm. and these are whatever language or architecture or, or literature. Um, so, but but to engage in the humanities is actually the making of things, and through the making, the discoveries that that occur from that. And and so for me, what's the difference between um, humanities as a, a, a practice or a discipline and public humanities? For me, public humanities is about. Um, sharing stories but giving people the tools and the encouragement and the safe space you know the Mm -hmm. um free of sort of um fear of judgment to play and create things that um that again afford them an opportunity to discover this power and discover their power too as storytellers in all these different ways yeah so You were a recipient or the recipient of the 2018 Public Humanities Scholar Award from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. Congratulations. Thank you. The theme of the celebration at which you received the award was the humanities as a bridge, a bridge between institutions and the public, a bridge between different communities, and so on. How do you think the public humanities is doing at building these various bridges, and how can it improve? Right. And so I think that... um when we say public humanities, uh, what do we mean? And I think that the humanities are are there, you know, the opportunity to engage in a humanities practice, whether it's study or whether it's creation, is always there. And so, so 
I feel like to gauge the success of the public humanities in a in a in a place, and we'll say Rhode Island, is to look at all the people and organizations that are engaging in some sort of humanities practice and reaching out into the community to um, engage people in this experience as well. And I think that we're really lucky to live in a state where there is such a deep and rich cultural community and a community that understands um, the value of this work and both in the, like you're saying, in the sort of hearing stories Mm. through film or spoken word or music or whatever and creating opportunities for people to to create work as well stories as well uh and and so i think there is a lot of um there's a lot of work being done i think of uh the dirt palace and what they're doing with the wedding cake house project on the west side of providence and that these are people who just see incredible value in supporting the voices of artists in our community and and throughout the world and creating spaces that um, sustain that those people and their and their work encourage them to keep making work I think of um, you know the State Council for the Humanities and and it was an honor to receive this award to be acknowledged by this community that um, I I love and I love being a part of and I think that their work, too, is sort of seeding that culture. Is there room for more? Always, right? There's always room for more of that. But there is such a great uh, ground or foundation of, of people and institutions who are engaged in this work. And, and I think that, right, there's always room to do more. When you receive the Public <laughs> Humanities Scholar Award from which you said in your speech, if I think about this honor and what it means, I think... I think that it is an acknowledgement of my passion for history and my willingness to let that passion take me in any direction that it seems to pull. To follow passion is a divining rod that has never failed me. Humanities often gets a bad rap as being useless, especially for finding a job, and you yourself did not take a job in humanities when graduating (laughs) college. (laughs) Is there a limit to what passion can do for the humanities, or is it just a matter of drive and risk and desire. Yeah, I, uh, again, I think that on a certain level, we're all as human beings engaged in the humanities. I mean, some of us examine that more than others. And so I think that um, that regardless of the work that we are doing, this, if, if the humanities is storytelling, storytelling is a part of all our lives. And, and maybe it's that direct engagement in storytelling as a profession that is kind of the question Mm -hmm. uh and do people who are engaged in the humanities as a profession make a lot of money no they don't (laughs) do people who are engaged in work non-humanities work that is like finance or scientific stem fields do they make good money they do they tend to make better money um is the point of being alive to make money no, it's not. The point of being alive is not to make money. And so I think that um, the humanities offer you know everyone this opportunity to enrich their lives and to discover the world around them and through that to discover themselves. And that makes that makes for a person who is more at ease with themselves in the world and better able to connect 
with the people around them and to create things that are good and substantive and don't have a monetary value. And and while I think that our value system, which is driven by capitalism and consumption, is, again, we are taught from a very young age that consuming is our purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And there is little, you know, there were institutions and ways of seeing the world a long time ago who taught us differently. But I think that a lot of those institutions have faded or have abdic- abdicated their responsibility to give us alternative uh, systems. And so the field is left to the idea of making money and consuming with that money to, to show our value. Um, mm-hmm. The humanities are not that and shouldn't be that. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think, you know, do I wish I made the same money I made when I worked in finance? <laughs> Absolutely. I do wish that. But do I wish I was doing what I had to do to make it? No. Would I rather be doing what I'm doing now? And is this so much better and more fulfilling and more purposeful and more connected with other people in spite of, I think, the discomfort that often comes with it, the conflict that often comes with it. This is by far the better work. And when I'm on my deathbed, I will say, what an amazing set of connections and a community that I lived in and felt a part of and felt that we were all working toward some change or some realization of ourselves versus I really wish I had bought that gold Maserati. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking of that, could you have imagined when you were leaving New York City, your job in finance, could you have imagined where you'd be right now? Or was have things just gone in a way you never could have planned? I never could have planned it. I could never have imagined. I'm awestruck and um, sort of speechless to think about the great good fortune that I've had to, to be in Rhode Island and to be connected with the people that I, I care about and have come to love and to feel um, that the work I'm doing has an impact and that impact is valued and acknowledged in this community. So when I left New York, I was like, I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to be famous. <laughs> what has happened you did Instead, write a novel. I did and write you, a novel. And you are, you we'll are say, Providence we'll famous. You are Rhode famous. Island famous. I'm Rhode Island famous. That, and that is plenty for me. That's amazing. I can't believe it. And I feel like, um, again, just sort of wonderstruck at the, um, at again, for me, what pursuing my passion and my interest and this willingness to play without fear or with minimized fear um, has has led to. And, and it's extraordinary. And I'm so grateful and kind of confounded about it all. Now that I know that you were originally studying architecture, this <laughs> explains it a little bit more, but you seem to have also entered into a lot of visual practices yeah. that um, if you just read your bio, you wouldn't expect, but then there's the letterpress, there's yeah. the wallpaper, there's the yeah. knitting, there's a lot of photography, which is not listed as one of your hobbies <laughs> per se, but a lot of photography, especially of your dog. Yes, Clovis. <laughs> I was going to say, it's all. this is Providence and Clovis, my uh, four-pound chihuahua Clovis. Um, and I think that, you know, writing writing stories and studying history and looking for ways to sort of turn that into story and to feel like I was going down that path in a very active, intentional way was the first thing. What I was like, if I love this and I can make this work or that I can do this and it opens up these opportunities and experiences that are so wonderful, what other things am I interested in that maybe I'm shy of taking up for Mm -hmm. fear of embarrassing myself or looking foolish or not looking whatever, knitting particularly, 
if I knit a sweater for my dog, does that make me look not masculine? <laughs> and uh, I'll let I'll let our listeners answer that question. Um, they are very nice sweaters, by the way. <laughs> they're really beautiful sweaters. And I agree. I've achieved a high level of skill in terms of, in this one form, a very small dog sweater. But... Uh, but yeah, and that like what incredible joy to both make something and to then put it on my dog who loves to wear clothes. Uh that that idea of then extending that into all sorts of things. I moved to Providence and my neighbors were artists and they talked to me about AS220 and brought me um my dear friend Caitlin Kelly brought me into the AS220 print shop and taught me to screen print and I'm not I've never had a visual practice in architecture the first semester one of the sort of red flags for me was the drawing and I could draw <laughs> houses on paper as a kid but then I'm doing these supposed architectural renderings which I felt were disastrous again I'm like putting all this sort of blame on me for not succeeding at it um, and that is a part of what led me into hist- saying history is where I want to sort of swim uh, and so coming here I had I had really avoided I felt you know I was a person who, oh I, yeah. I'm not an artist I'm not an artist I don't do that uh and Providence gave me a space to do that. And there were people who supported me in the doing of that, that made it feel risk-free, that made it feel um, fun and playful and not like I'm not presenting myself as the next Warhol or <laughs> whatever. I'm just making letterpress cards of my dog. So, uh, and that I think just opened up more and more that led to the wallpaper show, you know, that led to all these other experiences and the willingness to just put the judgment and the fear aside and to just relish the making. And I think that that, again, that is sort of exemplified. I try to, to manifest that in all the projects and things that I do. So one thing that we'll ask sometimes, and I, I feel like it's, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this in, in your case. What do you do day to day? Because I know of all of the different projects that seem so disparate, and I can't imagine that you're doing most of them every day. I don't, and I, I don't even know if I have an answer to that. I don't know what I do day to day. <laughs> I, I often, I feel like, and this is, we're all like, like, what is the thing in front of me that I have to get done? And what are the things that I've committed myself to that I'm not getting done, but <laughs> I can't get to them right now, or I just need to sleep right now, or I obviously am a fiction writer and engaging in all these other things both enriches, I think, my fiction practice, and certainly the historical research has been a great resource for my fiction practice, and yet I have to make time to write. Uh, And part of writing for me is daydreaming, and so Mm. the daydreaming component begins (laughs) to dominate the practice. So I feel like, yeah, every day is a different day. I try to go to the gym as often as I can, and then I look at my calendar and I think, what do I, who am I meeting today? Where am I going today? What do I have to do today? And I try to get it all done. I feel in one sense that um, compared to working in finance in New York City, where you would work, I mean, a 12-hour day is the norm, 16-hour days are not unusual, but you had a job and the job was defined by the ge- the sort of the spatial boundaries. I went to work and <laughs> I, I worked there and then I would go home and I would do whatever, iron or watch 
TV. Iron? <laughs> I had, for a while, I was really, I found ironing very sort of meditative, calming practice. So I just was ironing everything. But I think that was kind of decompressing from the stress of working in <laughs> finance in Manhattan. So that life that had these, these very clear boundaries between where was the space where I worked mm. and where was the space where I did not work versus this life where there are no spatial boundaries that I am kind of working wherever I'm at, but I'm also playing in my work. And so, so much of my work I mm. want to approach as and I feel is play so that it all bleeds together. And I don't know that there is or should be a difference between work and play and and when I am working and when I am playing and when I am not there's a very gray area there too. I, I could say, oh, I'm always working, or I could say, I'm always playing. <laughs> it's much better than saying, I'm never working. Also, <laughs> kids, choose the humanities to save yourself from a life of ironing. No ironing. Put the iron away. Who cares about wrinkles anyway? Come on. <laughs> most important thing I've learned today. <laughs> so when I asked you another time, you said that the public humanities needs a zippier name. Uh, you had some really good suggestions at the time, but I want to ask you now, what would you call the public humanities and why? Uh, you know, and I was thinking, and thank you for sort of giving me space to think about these questions a little in advance. And I think the public humanities are culture. I don't want to, this is a funny question and a playful question, <laughs> and I'm going to answer it in this very dead, serious, academic way. Um, I think culture, making culture, is is what the humanities are about, both examining culture, but through the examination, you are interpreting it, and the making of things makes uh, the cultural world. Um, so I think something connected to the idea of culture. Equally, perhaps equally uh, sort of opaque and boring as public humanity, the expression <laughs> public humanities, but well, no, I, <laughs> that's I, all I got. I feel like <laughs> culture is more, there, there's more understanding right now around the word yes. culture or even like aesthetic but humanities yeah. has has fallen out of like common usage in such yeah. a way that people frequently ask if if you're in the humanities are you studying to be a human's resource manager right. and it's right. it's like right. well it's not that someone that's couldn't be doing it, it but right. that's not all we do <laughs> and i love that there's like well i mean not exactly the answer <laughs> is not no <laughs> Well, I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> shame anyone who right. does want to yeah. do that with their lives because it's all because it's everywhere. Yeah. Because it is everywhere, and I think that right. I think humanity, the humanities, and public humanities have this opaque kind of academic ivory tower-ish detached feeling to them. That's something that's going on here on the URI campus, but it's mm -hmm. not something going on on, you know, Broad Street or South Main in Providence. But it is. And I, I do agree. I think the names we give things are important and, and attract can attract or repel, can tell a story that people want to hear or can tell a story that people want to like tune out versus I worked on a, a of something with Marta Martinez uh, mm. with Rhode Island Latino Arts and um, she was talking about walking tours she gives on Broad Street and the tour is like chimney truck tours so these food trucks that line up Broad Street and serve this um, you know these burgers and things with this chimichurri sauce they're called chimney trucks and that's a humanities practice walking up Broad Street eating food from these chimney trucks is a humanities practice, but how do we, what's the name we give it to make people say, oh, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I did like 
art and stories with humans. That's what. Yeah, I mean, I'm stu- <laughs> That's that's the best I think I could come up come up with. <laughs> I like making culture. I do like making culture. Yeah. I think it, it it does help people to understand what it what it what it really does, and yeah. that we all are doing it. And that we all can do it. And that when we come together to make things like wallpaper, we're also making community and making culture. And that this is how we connect ourselves with each other. And this is how we, this is how we navigate this very complicated and often scary world we live in. Well, and also to an extent that that title gives it the sense of even if you don't think you're actively participating or don't want to actively participate, like you're stuck. Yeah. You're in it. You're in it. You might as well have fun. Play. And I think that and I think through making culture, through coming together and and engaging in activity, actions, making stuff, we also build consensus around our values. We discover what our values are and we find ways to assert and express those values. And that is is making culture, you yeah. know, our, our culture and our values. These are our two sides of one coin. So as we wrap up, do you have any advice for our listeners? And you can imagine our listeners However you'd like, we tend to think of graduate students, whether they're just beginning a career in the humanities or if they're about to finish either their master's or their Ph.D. and get out into some world. I, uh, again, play, play, play. Allow yourself to follow your interests. Learn to gauge your emotions and say, this is something that I want to do more of and give yourself permission to do it. And to do that in a, as broad a way as possible, to open yourself up to all sorts of stories. I often find myself saying sometimes in classrooms where the students refuse to respond, I say, interesting people are interested in things. Mm. So I encourage us all to cultivate our interest in, in people and things. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. This was a pleasure. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. Join us for your next episode when we'll interview Rhode Island Council for the Humanities Fellow, Jenea Kizzy. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast was founded by Rachel Bassio and Michelle Meek. And this episode has been produced by Michael Landreth and Catherine Winters in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction by Catherine Winters. Michael Landreth is our editor and Mark Sketa is our sound designer.